Slingers. Welcome back to another week of the Word Slinger podcast. Um, I'm glad you joined me. We got a special episode this week. Uh, I'm talking to Eric C. Anderson, who has uh, sadly passed since our interview. So this is a very special Word Slinger podcast episode. You're going to learn a lot from it. So stick around and we'll get right to it. It's the Word Slinger Podcast, where story matters. Build your brand, write your book, redefine who you are. It's all about the story here. What's yours? Now, here's the guy who invented pants optional, Kevin Tomlinson, the Word Slinger. Word Slinger. Kevin Thompson, the Wordslinger, and I really appreciate you being here uh, for this episode of the Wordslinger podcast. I uh, I know that Eric's family is listening right now, and I want to extend my my deepest condolences uh, for your loss. My prayers are with you. Um, I know that this was a sudden passing. I don't know all the details of uh, of how Eric passed, but I um, I have to say that I really enjoyed the conversation that he and I had. I was, uh, I'm honored that uh, I had an opportunity to meet him, uh, get to know him, at least in this small way. So uh, to those of you who are friends, family, uh, loved ones of Eric C. Anderson, um, I, I, my deepest regrets for your loss and all the love that I can spare you guys, uh, I'm sending to you. Um, as little as I can do, this is about all I can do uh, to honor his memory, so I hope this lives up. Uh, for those of you listening, uh, it was a great interview. It was a, I would say it was on par with most of the interviews of the Words Learner podcast, but the thing is that stuck with me. Um, Eric was very knowledgeable about his, his subject matter um, because of his background, which we'll get into. Uh, that made this pretty special to me. I, I love talking to guys like Eric. Uh, I loved knowing people who had the sort of level of insight that he had um, into, you know, the intelligence community, into, uh, you know, all the things, (laughs) all the things that I write about in my thrillers, uh, frankly, uh, this guy lived, uh, had a connection to. um, And so this was, this was a great interview, a great opportunity to learn more, to learn how... um, Someone who's utilizing their personal experience in creating fiction that we can all love. Um, so I'm happy, honored, and privileged to introduce this episode, this interview, with Eric C. Anderson. We'll see you on the other side. Hey, everybody. Thank you for sticking around, uh, joining us here on the Wordslinger podcast. As usual, we've got a great guest lined up. I'm talking to Eric C. Anderson. He's the author of a book called Anubis, among other books. And we're going to talk about him, his work, um, possibly his hobbies. Definitely not his middle name, I've been warned. Uh, but I'm glad to have you on the show, Eric. Thanks for joining me. Good to be here, Kevin. I, I, I'm, I'm curious to see what you're going to come up with. <laughs> me too, because I never know in advance. Uh, so you're now, I've, I, I received a, uh, an arc of your book. I started thumbing through it, reading through it. Uh, and I, and I've noticed now this is the second book in a, in a series, right? Cause the first one was called, um, Osiris. Yes. Okay. And they have that Egyptian theme. I noticed the artwork first, of course, it's, you know, iconic, uh, Egyptian artwork with, uh, sort of modern day war machinery, uh, melded with it. 
Is that right? What we're trying to do is, is pull you back into a mindset that says you're not simply stepping into contemporary thought processes, but you're looking at something that's been in place, particularly with the Islamic State, since 650 AD. Uh, Muhammad marched onto the stage and, and decreed that there was yet another faith that we could all practice should we so choose. Uh, and the, the goal here in, in reaching out to the Egyptian was to remind people of that antiquity. And oh, by the way, the gods of choosing are not the most pleasant on the face of the planet. As you right. probably noticed with Osiris and Anubis, they're both the gods of the dead or the keepers right. of the tomb. Uh, yeah. And so it's a sort of a great reminder in the, in the subtle background that says this may not be all joy and happiness. You're not going to be smelling the flowers when we get done. <laughs> True. Now these are um, military thrillers, is that correct? I would argue that it's fair to contend that you have a military thriller uh, and what I've been working to do is put together a trilogy and that's what this is. The third book is called Horus and that, that one's also done. Mm -hmm. I, I'm waiting on the publisher at this point. I have to work by his schedule, not my own. Uh, but it was an, an opportunity to do uh, what people call historical fiction. And so not only do I give you a story to wrap the figures in, but I'm also giving you some real life characters that are sitting out there. Mr. al-Baghdadi really is Mr. al-Baghdadi. He's the Caliph Ibrahim who runs this entire organization. Uh, and the characters who surround him are also people that I have pulled out of the headlines and out of uh, news reports. You've got sort of this swirl of both the, the military fiction that goes with it and the, the dramatic characters who step out there. Uh, we have the Gunnery Sergeant Moore and the, the beleaguered Major Fahim uh, from the U.S. Army, but then you've got the characters who surround them as well on the political side. And so you get introduced to President Chuck Schumer, I, you know, licensed there with the, the that U.S. politics can go in the future. Uh, <laughs> and the cast come with the, you know, the scene in Washington. Uh, so I, I have I have fun putting the pieces together. So it's sort of uh, part military thriller, uh, part political and possibly espionage. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I do have my coterie of Turkish spies who wander in and out as we go through. And it's, you, you couldn't avoid the Turks in having this conversation because as you watch Mr. Erdogan, who's the current president of Turkey, you know, he, he's rebuilding the Ottoman Empire. And if you're going to rebuild empire, you have to have a group of spies to come with you. And so I've brought those characters along as well. Yeah. So um, now, how are you doing research for this kind of thing? Are you uh, you're clearly a history buff? I get that vibe from you right away, uh, and yeah, you clearly follow the the current. Um, I guess we can call this history in motion uh, that's happening overseas. So, what do you typically do to kind of keep on top of all this stuff? I I don't know that it, it comes across in my bio quite well, but I I spent 25 years in the U.S. intelligence community, okay. uh, working. The current problem uh, everywhere from Korea to Saudi Arabia and into Iraq. Uh, so I, I bounced across the planet. Unfortunately, I spent 10 years of my career sitting in Washington, D.C., entertaining the kids at either DIA or CIA. That would be the Defense Intelligence Agency or the Central Intelligence Agency. And if you do that for a living long enough, you become a news junkie. Uh, yeah. So I find it hard today without reading the New York Times, the Washington Post, and most of the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. Uh, and then I'm sort of a you hand it to me, I'll read it type of person. Um, and so I, I run along with it. So taking my own background, what comes across on the, the media side, and then I, I'm guilty of picking up almost anything and reading it. Uh, yeah. So I, there's a next to my bed that never seems to get any smaller. Uh, right. And that's how I try to keep up with the, the latest developments. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, I mean, uh, it's kind of interesting. We, it, it comes down to the truth being stranger than fiction a lot of the time. Uh, I can't make up half of what's happening in the world right now. It's actually pretty incredible. <laughs> I just did a piece for the Houston Chronicle on Mr. Trump's meetings with uh, Kim Jong-un. And I said, you know, it, it took me a while to arrive at this analogy, but I, I'm very struck by the similarity between what Mr. Trump has just done and what Neville Chamber Chamberlain did with Adolf Hitler in 1938. Mm -hmm. About 80 years later, we're repeating the mistakes of history all over again. Right. Uh, which makes being a student of history uh, far more amusing on occasion. Oh, but we're sure to get it right this time because we have uh, iPhones and GPS. We're sure to get it all right this time. <laughs> so, so you mentioned the Houston Chronicle. That's my hometown paper, as it were. Uh, do you, uh, where, where are you living? I didn't even check. Where are you right now? I live up on the, the northwest, the great American northwest, up at the far end of the Olympic Peninsula. So if you okay. wanted the last tip of America before you fall into the Pacific Ocean, that would be me. That I describe, I, 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 I describe I where I live in similar terms. As possible. Yeah, <laughs> I was saying I describe uh, where I live in similar terms. That you can't get much further south without being knee deep in the Gulf of Mexico. There you go. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. So uh, you've got um, you've got an interesting career then. So you're you're doing a little bit of uh, uh, is it just mostly op ed or are you doing some some journalism um, sort of freelance journalism or. <laughs> So I, I started life as, I tell people, as a failed academic. Okay. Uh, I, I received a doctorate at the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri. Uh, nothing like spending some time in the flyover part of the country. Mm -hmm. And after two years, I said, I'm not doing this anymore. I was teaching American government and didn't want to teach American government for the rest right. of my career. Uh, so I walked out the door and ran a restaurant for a year. And then the Air Force called and said, have we got a job for you? And uh, no, I'm an Air Force intelligence officer, and because I spoke German, they sent me to Korea. It's the Air Force. Right, right. <laughs> Wandered from there. Uh, along the way, I've done uh, now three academic books, um, looking at first sovereign wealth funds, and then I transitioned out and looked at China, and then finally I, I've done the first book on Huawei, uh, the Chinese telecommunications firm. Uh, that one caused all sorts of consternation when I pushed that out in D.C. But I said, you know, here, here's an opportunity to learn something new. And I, I know more about Huawei than I care to admit on occasion in and, and the telecommunications industry. And I, along that, I ran into Adam Dunn, who's the publisher for Onibus, uh, Osiris, Horus. And now uh, coming out in September, you'll see Byte, B-Y-T-E, which is my next, that um, I look at the cyber community and the way that we can use cyber to impact the Russian election. All's fair in love and war, right? There you go. Turn, the, the, Turn about and all that. So, you know, it's been an opportunity for me to sort of plug into anything and everything that comes up for writing. So I've written for the Presidential Daily Brief. Uh, I used to write for Huffington Post. And I've done a number of op-eds for more papers than I can keep track of. And then People periodically grab me and say, why don't you blog for us for a while? Yeah. So I've done blog articles for woodworking schools. I'm a carpenter by trade. In uh, uh, anybody else who's come up and said, you know, uh, put your pen to paper on this one. See what you think. Yeah. I have, it's, an, it's an enjoyable way to pass time. That's a, uh, an eclectic career, but I noticed that writing is the through line uh, for, your, for your career there. I, I get asked periodically. I didn't. And I, I have to chuckle when I do this, but you know, how do you teach people to write? And I said, well, I would be Mr. Bad Example. I've never written an outline in my life. 
and yeah. uh, <laughs> that yeah. catches them. I, I teach a writing schools periodically, and they, you know, you'll get the students as well. How do you keep track of the the storyline? Well, somewhere between my ears, I know where I want to arrive. It's yeah. just a matter of being there. I, I I had a writing professor who told me the the key to learning how to write well. Uh, is to strap the student to a desk with a bomb under it and tell him to finish before the bomb goes off. <laughs> <laughs> so you, uh, go ahead, I'm sorry. You know, that there's a bit of that pressure line that comes in, but I, I mostly self-imposed. I, I get started and it, it's, while I'm thinking about this, maybe I should get it done. That, that's the way that I keep myself online uh, when I'm going. Right. You, um, it's interesting that you're a uh, you're a carpenter by trade. How long have you been in that business? Uh, since high school, my father I don't think had great faith in my ability to finish high school, so he put me in a carpentry program. There you go. And <laughs> somewhat amazed him when I managed to wander out of a user a university ten years later. And it's always been a, a great way to put another motorcycle into my garage or uh, yeah. accomplish projects the neighbors impossible. And I I enjoy right. doing it. So. I, no, my, my claim is I like to go out to the shop and create sawdust because it clears out my head from everything else that I've got going on up there. Yeah, that uh, being able to create something, uh, build something, particularly with the, that skill. I'm a fan. I, I, I do a, some carpentry. I'm not a professional, but I do enjoy doing it. I'm not very precise, though. Like I'm a, you know, I got I make things that are functional that uh, may not necessarily be uh, uh, beautiful. <laughs> so. I, I, get I, made the horrible, I made the horrible mistake of getting into wooden boat building. And there your precision yeah. comes down to one sixty-fourth of an inch. Right. And the curve start to get to you after a while. And it's well, okay, you know, here's what we're gonna spend the next three days on. And yeah. sometimes you make progress on one piece of wood. See, I think uh that has to have lent itself to uh helping you improve in, in terms of your writing and craft I, that focus uh do you do you feel that way do you feel like the the carpentry helps you with that at all oh i would agree and it, you know here's the the object lesson i bring back from it so i i promise myself when i sit down in front of a keyboard that i'll do five double spaced pages a day mm -hmm. and at the end of five pages i run a, a spell check and then i hit print and i walk away I leave the, the printout sitting on my desk and come back in the morning and I reread through it. Uh, and then I go to do the next five pages and it causes me to edit by step through to catch the, the, the language use. And then it provides a continuity in the process of building the story as it rolls along. So you don't lose the tone of voice, your characters keep the same tenor. Uh, and it causes you to be sort of nitpicky to the degree it drives me and then of course, I'll, I'll ship off to a professional editor and I get back all sorts of little remarks and you go, how, how did I fail to capture that? Yeah. That's because you get too close yeah. to your own project. That's true, yeah. Um, I use a process I stole from Dean Wesley Smith called looping, which is very similar. Um, I, you know, I write my word count for the day. I come back the next day, read and edit that, continue on the word count. So it's the same, I think it's the same thing. And you do catch quite a bit that you, uh, Probably would have overlooked before, but I'm definitely the worst editor of my own work for sure. <laughs> the, the, the secret I used to tell my students is you, you pick up the manuscript that you mm -hmm. think you're working on. And if your spouse has a good deal of humor, in my case, it's the dog. So the dog will listen to anything right. and read it. 
And if it doesn't sound like your voice or it doesn't make sense, it probably isn't what you wanted to put down. Right. And it makes, I think, the simplest way to do a first cut on any draft uh, and move forward. And then you have to surrender your thick hide to the, you know, the various trials and tribulations that any editor is willing to put upon you. Mm-hmm. And I found it's always good to look at the editor, nod up and down, north and south, and just agree, and then wait for the line item edits and to go, mm, you know, we're not changing that. Well, the following three things I'll make you happy and I'll bring into consideration. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, the editors. Um, I uh, I probably am, uh, I'm probably well hated by most of my editors, actually. <laughs> <laughs> So, you, so you're right. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. A funny story to that effect. I'm serving as the senior editor for a book we're calling Factus Europa. And it's looking okay. at the, the, dis, the disintegration of liberal democracy in Europe over the last 10 years. And the foreword on it, I, I, I get the privilege of writing the editors afterward, but the foreword is being done by a notable, leave unnamed, uh, whom, when I sent back the edits to his forward, uh, little to his knowing, sent to the editor or the publisher his comments, who then sent them to me. And yeah. his opening remark was, who is this editor and what is his pedigree? And I thought, well, okay, you know, we're going to open up with intellectual snobbery and then we'll proceed to why your English language is un- illegible to the rest of us who have to follow <laughs> through the storyline. Right. So, the, the thick hide is not always resident. You're right, yeah. My pedigree, by the way, is uh, the chicken and herb. Uh, that's the pedigree. That's the pedigree that I associate with. <laughs> You'll have be, to explain that one to me. That would be the dog food uh, named pedigree. Um, so, <laughs> no, I. Uh, so, yeah, I. You know, it's interesting because I. I my process, of course, I don't work with a lot of uh, editors on the traditional side these days. Uh, more now, actually, than than a couple of years ago, because I'm starting to dip into that well again with a primarily short fiction, but um, it is good. It's good to get good feedback, but it is interesting uh, when people resist, uh, when people become bitter. So you do, uh, you do some editing. Is that the only project you're editing right now? That's the only major project that I'm working on. Uh, I just, I, I simply run out of time. Now your, your audience will get a kick out of this. this is a nice thing about being in video. And the reason that I have as much time as I do is that I decided to go for a little mountain hike uh, the 21st of May. And now I look like this. Ah. <laughs> I, I shattered the, the angle. For the audio version of the podcast, he just held up a leg in a cast. <laughs> Presumably well, I, attached I, to your body. <laughs> I managed to shatter my ankle in 11 yeah. pins on the plate later. I've been told that I can't walk for another three weeks. So I don't know. And looking at the computer and I can take on all sorts of projects, which gets me into trouble because then I land up sitting in front of the computer for days. Yeah. It's a, it's a nice change of pace and it beats swinging a hammer all the time. Well, that's true. Yeah. So you, uh, now what I've discovered is um, rather than upping my productivity when I'm stuck in front of a computer for uh, more than a couple hours a day, uh, it actually ends up dint, putting a dent in my productivity. Do you feel the same way? You know, I, I, you're gonna you're gonna feel bad, but no, no I. Uh, I'm, I'm perfectly I, willing to to be the odd man out on that. <laughs> for, for your visual folks, this is the sixth book right now. That's what I've been doing. There's a 
paperwork here for those of you who are listening on a, a podcast, and it's my attempt to take the mystery of uh, Malaysian Air Flight 370, the one that disappeared off right. the probably somewhere in the bottom of the Indian Ocean, mm-hmm. and turn it into a story that looks at looks at the um, corruption and potential uh, purposeful sabotage that occurs within the commercial airline industry that we all depend upon day in and day out. Uh, hmm. So I've been having fun with that story, and it, it keeps me away from you know, going out and shopping through various odd, strange websites or trying to read through. <laughs> Uh, just <laughs> right. I actually have a story uh, in the works based on that that event. So it'd be interesting to see how those how those two stack up. I'm thinking they're very different stories, though. <laughs> I, I suspect I you know I I bring to bear uh, given my experiences. So I, I've got characters who are running all over in the Philippines, right? Uh, China, uh, Korea, and Japan, and they're, they're all territory that I have trod well multiple times and then i'm up in vladivostok and if you can spare yourself a trip to vlad i would recommend it it's uh it's never night you know, the vodka really? is not good and the population is fairly surly because they have to live there uh, yeah but it makes for interesting set of characters oh, yeah. to play with. with a so setup that, like that how could i not want to go there <laughs> yeah well that's how i keep going crazy is I, I watch the various movements that occur in those territories right that's interesting that's interesting. Yeah, I uh, I can appreciate that kind of thing. That's that's I've always wanted to be the type of person who uh, just devoured um, newspapers and that sort of thing. But I just maybe I like focus. I don't know. I just have never been that guy. I I do it for a time and then I'm on to something else. <laughs> I read I read very widely, but I just can't stick with newspapers and news stories that 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 closely. It, it comes from spending time within the intelligence community yeah. in the days. Uh, the way that you received your reporting until we, we finally got to displaying it on screens and then ruined everybody's eyes, uh, was that you got uh, essentially newspaper print-offs, you know, the old high-speed printers, dot matrix, mm-hmm. and you, you would land up going through sometimes in the course of a 12-hour shift, 500 to 600 stories. Mm-hmm. And it was shotgunned all over the planet or and sometimes very specifically within the you know the area of responsibility that you were working and the expectation was that you were going to be able to glean out the patterns and the things of importance and throw out the rest of it yeah um, some days you're good at it some days you get done and you go how in the world did i miss that uh, right it's a frustrating experience do you find yourself still um looking for those patterns it never ends um yeah. I've been doing it. In fact, I'm, I'm on the hook to do a piece for foreign policy, uh, looking at what the rise of Mr. Orban and his party uh, within Hungary means for the European Union, particularly Eastern European Union, as we look forward to where Mr. Putin is going to go as he ages out of his presidency and where we think democracy or something that's far more authoritarian. I don't know if you saw Madeleine Albright's book, uh, her, her contention that fascism is the wave of the future yeah. uh, and the you know what does mr orban mean given that uh, environment so it is it's another pattern hunt and the look to see you know, what can we glean from this and what can we warn the policymakers about right but as and instead of uh you talking to the dia and cia you are writing books about these topics then i well as you said you know i do books i do the op-eds uh right. i do a, 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 i've got a Unfortunately, I have to admit this, I have a great deal of correspondence between my friends in the business, 
back in DC and, and other people who want to have you know sort of the back channel commentary that comes along with it. There's there's right. a whole cottage industry in the hey, get the guy who's been working this for forever to think about it and come back and tell you something, and then you can take his thoughts, put him, get credit for it, and he can think you know he's added something to the conversation. So, yeah. <laughs> you, 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 sometimes I think you're just soothing your own soul by doing that, but it, it keeps me busy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you know, guys like uh, Brad Thor have been invited into that red cell program uh, with the government. Uh, maybe you should, maybe you should uh, start hinting to somebody should bring you into that. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. funny. You should say that. Uh, I was on the red cell, the CIA red cell for two oh, years. Okay. The CIA red cell, consists of five senior analysts from across the intelligence community. And we were tasked with going through all of the intelligence reporting and not necessarily turning it 180, but perhaps 45 degrees or 90 from where the analysts were telling him the policymaker was supposed to arrive. Uh, fascinating place to be sitting. And you found yourself dragged into all sorts of conversations that you really didn't plan on. Uh, I walked in by happenstance, I was a Northeast Asia specialist and the uh, woman who was running the bread cell, she says, you know, I need someone to work the Middle East. She says, I know you can find the countries on the map. We spent enough time there, but how about you work Arabist? And I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm not an Arabist by trade. And she says, good. That means you won't actually fall into the pit, the pit traps that uh, come up by people who've been looking at the same thing over and over again. She yeah. was right. Uh, I had a lot of fun with the analysts and it was, it's, a, it's an interesting place to work. Now, I, I don't know to what degree the current president uses that material. Um, Mr. Obama was certainly very receptive, and the Bush administration was also receptive to, to saying, you know, well, what, what are these, you know, these old people who are working in a back dusty room thinking? Yeah. Yeah. See, that's a, to me, that's a, that's a wealth of story ideas right there. <laughs> I had a colleague. Um, who was, I think, four years ahead of me in the Red Cell, who decided that he would write a book on the Red Cell, wrote a novel. It's, it's in print still, uh, called The Red Cell. And I think he's sort of a, you know, a fascinating character. He got into more trouble on trying to get that book released than you can possibly imagine. Because you know, I can imagine, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had to sign 13 lifetime non-disclosure statements over the course of my career. You, know, you would think that one was enough, but no, 13 by the time I got done with the count. And in order for me to publish now, I have to send the materials into the, an office at the Director of National Intelligence and they do a review on it. Hmm. Uh, sometimes they're pretty quick. Sometimes it gets lost for months. Um, the one I did on Huawei took them six months to clear. And it was, that was 900 footnotes in there. So that, that should tell you something about the sensitivities that are associated. I think many times it's more the politics than it is the content. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. I um, so you have to do that with every book that you you publish. You have to send it to be vetted by those guys. Uh, oh yes, <laughs> and if you don't, and somebody discovers that you put something in that they think is sensitive, they uh, maintain the privilege of yanking the copies off the shelf and charging you for the price of destroying the books. Say nothing of what your publisher is going to do to you when they find out that their product has now been removed. So it, it uh, behooves a would-be within the intelligence community or former member of the intelligence community to go through that painful, here's another mother, may I email and see what they do. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, that, that makes it sound far less attractive to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, that's cool. Well, it's, I, I was asked one time about being in the intelligence community and my uh, ex-wife ran Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, crew, mm -hmm. an organization that's still in business. And we were at a, a dinner for some fundraiser for the ACLU in Washington, D.C. So, you know, the, the collection of the uh, the hoity-toity of Washington. And, right. you know, they, they trapped me in the corner because my wife was well-known. Nobody knew what I did. And uh, the first question was, who are you? And I said, well, I'm the trophy spouse. And then right. they got around to, oh, you, you're married to Melanie. And I said, yes. And one of the ladies said, well, what's your thought on ethics and morals? And I said, so let me explain to you my job in the intelligence community. Right. I read other people's, I do the intended recipient harm, and if I'm successful, I get a pat on the back. I have no ethics or morals. And they all walked away from me in that room and left me alone for the rest of the evening. <laughs> worked quite well. That's interesting. So you, uh, are any of your works, I mean, is any of what you've published so far, is it informed by that work? Um, I assume it is, but I just, just to put it out there, your ideas coming from the uh, your past career. Oh, absolutely. There, there would be no way, particularly on the fiction side, um, that I could argue to the contrary. Mm -hmm. uh, it, you, your experiences with you, you bring the the comments and the the policymakers' perceptions with you, mm -hmm. uh, and it it helps inform storyline that you want to tell because you you know what questions are being asked at least in the, the circles where they pay a lot of what is going on there. Uh, my academic materials, uh, you know, I walked into uh, kind of a funny story. Uh, when I wrote Take the Money and Run, uh, mm -hmm. Seven Friends and the Demise of American Property, it was the, the first academic book I put out. Uh, the reason that I, I, the subject was that I had been asked, I was working in a think tank in DC at the time, and I'd been asked by JP Morgan to do a presentation on investment opportunities uh, in northern Iraq, and this was on the, the uh, fringes of the World Bank Conference that take play, takes place in D.C. every year. Mm -hmm. So I'm sitting in front of a room with a state department and uh, some trained economist and, and myself, and we're you know providing for what would arguably be some of the 500 smartest people you've ever met since they're investing all of your and my money. And the guy in the back of the room stands up and he says, where are the sovereign wealth funds spending money? And uh, we the three wise men in the front of the room looked at each other and went, separate wealth funds. Um, so I went home that day and punched it into Google, and this is 2007, and did a, a dredge for sovereign wealth funds. And uh, let's see, I think seven hits came up, eight mm -hmm. hits came up. That today you're in the thousands, potentially millions. Uh, and it started to be down a path of chasing this. And yeah. So I, you, know, you, you walk in a completely new both to the intelligence community um, and to the even the private investment banking community at the time. I, I had a lot of fun with that one. So it's not it's not only what you stumble into from your career, but sometimes it's you know your own intellectual schizophrenia that'll get you into trouble when it comes to writing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that part I know. <laughs> I think writers um I think uh, one trait of writers is that we tend to uh, get very interested in things to the point of we would make it a career, uh, but we'd rather, you know, write a story about it and then move on to the next thing we're interested in. <laughs> I, could probably, I agree with you. I, yeah. 
I still have friends who are in academia and you know, you, I, I did my dissertation on American voting behavior. Uh, and was one of the early people who was working on the, the quantitative side of political science as opposed to pulling things out of history books. Right. Uh, so I was a, a number cruncher by trade. And the, the contention was, uh, particularly as I sat in academia, well, this is what you'll do for the remainder of your career. Here's your research area and you can pursue that. Mm -hmm. I said, you gotta be kidding me. I, I can't stay interested in one topic for more than about the year. It takes me <laughs> the book associated and I'm gone. I'm on to something else there. Uh, right. I'm doing the same thing in the, the world of novels. You know, I'm, I'm, I've pretty much had my fill of ISIS now. I could, I could definitely go working elsewhere and see what's, what else is coming yeah. out. That's why I, ch I started writing archaeological thrillers, because I could study all the different uh, world cultures throughout history, uh, essentially change gears uh, frequently. So that keeps me interested. <laughs> and, you know, I never thought about writing about archaeology. I, I have a good friend who works in it. Oh, there you go. You got a source. I don't even have a source. I have to always uh, go out and hunt for people to get uh, <laughs> professional opinions. <laughs> you know, I, I think probably some of the more ignored people in society would be archaeologists, except yeah. in Dan Brown novels. Yeah. We have an opportunity there to, to plumb the depths without working very hard. Right, right. Yeah, that's what nothing I do. Like I don't work academic. hard at all. Yeah, there's nothing like an academic who feels they're ignored to be willing to spend lots of time talking to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. All right. Well, we're, we're kind of coming up on our, uh, our time. Uh, I want to make sure we cover, you know, I want to make sure we get to where people can actually find you and your work online. Where, where can people find you online? Sure. If you're looking to discover where Osiris, Anubis, and, and soon uh, both Byte and Horus will appear, one, of course, we we all subscribe to that, that great store in the sky, Amazon. Uh, mm -hmm. And I have my, you can discover us there. Uh, we also, and I have to put in a push for this one, uh, I work for Dunn Books, D-U-N-N books.com. Uh, and Adam is the publisher for that organization. And you can also get the books through there. And it gives you an idea, in addition to the books that are we're, we're moving forward, uh, I run a blog for him. So you can find my rantings and ravings going there at any given time. I'll be pushing something through. And it, it's a website that in a publishing house that is now he's dedicated this to pushing forward the idea of let's advance these look forward in time, crime novels, uh, military novels, and, and sort of the, you know, where am I going in the cyber world as I proceed down the pace. So it's mm -hmm. a place to do some investigating on the web. Excellent. All right. Well, I, if you're listening, if you're watching, uh, you can find links to that in the show notes of this episode, both below if you're on YouTube and at wordslingerpodcast.com. Definitely go check that out. Uh, Eric, thanks so much for, for spending time with us, man. Kevin, you're more than welcome. It's good to be here. Yeah. I look forward to seeing the next one falls on the show. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, so, all right, everybody, right now, you are hearing the groovy theme music. You may dance in place at will. Nobody's watching. And uh, you stick around. We're going to talk about some stuff that's going to be important to you on the other side of the break. Again, Eric Anderson, thank you so much for being on. Everyone else, we'll see you on the other side your book the way it was meant to be heard with a fully custom soundtrack based on your material an album of music that perfectly fits your characters your settings hear your book today sonatainscribe.com hey thanks for sticking around uh, after the interview i hope you got a lot out of that chat with eric um for his family i i 
this sort of thing, uh, it's happened before. Uh, this is the first time that a that one of my guests has passed before his interview went live, but I've had um, previous guests on the show who uh, did not, um, uh, who passed away, uh, frankly, after we had our chat. Uh, it always strikes me, uh, it always is, it always kind of hits home for me, uh, because there's something about, you know, because I made this personal connection with someone who is effectively a stranger, who works in the industry I work in, who does the work that I love doing, um, and so we were able to instantly bond because of that. We were part of a community. Um, and as a part of the community, as we saw, uh, you know, last, the last episode with, uh, Brandon Barr, who is, uh, terminally ill, uh, the community rises up to support not just the artist, but the family and friends of the artists, uh, knowing that, you know, someone's passing has an impact uh, all around. So uh, I just, I, I, I'm always at something of a loss and I apologize. I don't script these things as you can tell. Uh, so I don't have a, a point to make here, honestly, other than I'm, I'm, I'm proud and glad uh, and, and heartened to have known Eric, however briefly. And uh, for the others that uh, have passed, you know, I, I, it should be known that I, I think about all of them. I think about it, all of them as if we were old friends. Uh, it, every, it hits every time. This week, um, Stan Lee passed. Another, uh, he's a pillar of the community, uh, the, uh, the writing community, the creative community. I grew up with Stan Lee. You know, I grew up with his voice in my head on Saturday mornings. I grew up with his soapbox in the back of my comics. Uh, he created the character that I most identify with in fiction, Spider-Man. Uh, Peter Parker, actually. Uh, probably more than Spidey himself, Spider-Man. But um, to lose these people, these creatives, um, it, it impacts the world. Because this, the, the things that we're out there creating, it, it, let me just put it this way. There is a purpose for us. There's a purpose for um, writers, artists of all types, uh, anyone who does creative work. We serve a role in the world and the universe, and that role is to provide entertainment. Um, but, you know, entertainment has shaped the lives of, of individuals, has shaped the, the world, uh, has opened up opportunities, uh, has created new technologies. I mean, look at the impact of Star Trek. Gene Roddenberry uh, creates creates this show that is Wagon Train in Space. He creates a cast of characters who are diverse. I mean, probably the single most diverse cast I can think of uh, in that era. And, uh, and he takes all the taboos off the table. You know, the first interracial kiss on screen i've heard that it's debated whether that was the first uh but uh for all intents and purposes it was the first interracial kiss that anyone knows about uh, uh colloquially i guess um tackling issues of race you got the uh, episode where the guys with the uh the white white skin on one side and black skin on the other and black skin on one side and white skin on the other uh you know these these things um these themes came up in Star Trek long before, well, not long before. I mean, they were they were coming out in uh, society, uh, in our culture, 
Um, but no one wanted to talk about this stuff. It was all controversial. Stan Lee creates the X-Men as a way to talk about racism in the, uh, in the United States in particular. Um, to tackle issues of racism without pointing fingers at anybody. Without bringing anybody else down. Um, we could use more of that today. You know, metaphor has always been a powerful tool. Um, we have, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian, so, you know, uh, the greatest teacher of all time used parables and metaphor to get points across, to educate people about how to live their lives, the proper way to, uh, to uh, live and focus your life. And um, as much as I know there is a, uh, a growing contingent of those who don't believe in God, um, I, I understand where you're coming from. But uh, you have to admit that all of our all the things that are good in our world were shaped by this mm -hmm. these notions that we consider uh, Christian doctrine or whatever. Uh, I don't want to get off too far on that, but I, I do I, I appreciate that some do not agree with me on my position here. Uh, but this is how I see the world, and it's my show. Um. So, the thing about the. Uh, the thing about mourning those who have passed, um, you know, we feel a little pain. We feel the loss of it. Uh, I still feel the loss of the those people in my life that were so close to me. Um, you know, my grandmother, I still feel the loss of her back in 1996. So it's been quite a while. I mean, it's been 20, over 20 years um, since she she passed away, and I still feel it. Like it just happened sometimes. Um, losing, I you know, I, I've lost pets that just damaged me. My my cat Mia was my heart and soul. When she passed, it, it destroyed me. Um, so, the, you know, loss and grief, uh, they take a toll on us. But, be, but because we are creatives, we can take that and we can turn it into something meaningful that helps other people deal with grief or helps other people... Um, feel inspired, uh, and go out, they go out and they create something wonderful and beautiful in the world. So that's what I'm trying to do here. Uh, that's what I hope I've done here. And to Eric's family, I hope you feel that, uh, that this was appropriate for uh, honoring this person who uh, I know meant so much to you. So um, one thing I, I've always meant to say, I've never come around to saying this, and because I, I never could quite figure out the best way to bring this up, but the guy who did the announcement uh, does the uh, the intro, and uh, I'm I'm really sorry that I cannot remember his name off the top of my head right now. Um, <laughs> what a way to honor somebody! Uh, I I'm, I apologize to his family if you ever happen to listen in on this, but the, we'll call him Wordslinger guy for now. Um, he uh, he passed away in 2015. Shortly after, not too long after uh, recording the intro for this episode, honestly. Well, then a, it was two years later. I mean, so so quite a bit of time had passed. But I had actually went on a hunt to find this guy to do a... I wanted to do a slight re-record of the intro. I wanted his voice to continue to be the voice of the show. Um, I just wanted a slight change. And um, I didn't get a response. And I went hunting again maybe a year or two later. Uh, didn't get a response, and then finally managed to track down 
uh, his obituary and a note from he was working for a uh, a radio station um, as a, uh, a talk show host or a, a morning DJ or something. I mean, he was do, doing uh, voice work for radio. Um, and they, you know, they did a little tribute to him because of his work. He hadn't been there long, but he passed away suddenly, you know, um, leaving a, a, a sort of void. But it was a shocking moment for me uh, because I literally hear this guy's voice every week. And if you if you're a, if you've been following the show, so have you. You hear him announce, you know, here's the guy invented pants optional, and that's that's this guy. And um, it is killing me that I don't have his name right on top of my head. Um, but that's something notable, something interesting, right? Here's something he created. He was paid to create it. I, I gave him money to uh, to do that intro. Uh, but the, because of him, this show has a certain flavor. There's a certain nuance to this show that I wanted. It was perfect, dead on, exactly what I was hoping for, for the uh, for the announcer, for the intro. Um, the music, of course, also contributes to that. He didn't do the music, but he he was part of the whole thing. Okay, so having that, it kind of honors him that I continue to use that intro. It's a it's his work, his art, uh, appearing over and over again, allowing him, allowing him to live on in a a small way. Uh, this is by no means the the you know uh, no no. There's not a billion people out there listening to his show. There's like thirty five thousand of you, uh, maybe a little more now. I need to recheck my numbers, but you know, let's say in the forty to fifty thousand range, who listen to this show every week, uh, and each of you knows that that opening. You know, so each of you carries this small piece of someone who has passed uh, out into the world. And whatever tiny influence that has, and I believe it's positive, um, that gets reflected in how you treat others and what you create in the world. And the same is said, it can be said for uh, Eric C. Anderson, for, uh, for Brandon Barr, for, um, you know, all those, my grandmother. <laughs> For all those uh, who have passed on, um, that's what's important about our work. When we create something that goes out in the world and is it becomes a part of the world, that influence carries on whether we're still around or not. So that's why it's so important to do the work we do. That's all. That's all I wanted to say. Um, beyond that, uh, I am uh, <laughs> moving on. Moving on from that, and I'm I'm sorry if this brought anybody down. I was hoping this would be very uh, a very hopeful episode. I still think it's a very hopeful message, very hopeful episode. Uh, it, uh, in other news, however, right now, um, Draft Digital we just released an update to the DDD author pages with custom carousels. So uh, now you can customize these these carousels that uh, showcase your books, uh, including the order in which they're presented. So I was able to um, customize mine and show my Dan Kotler thrillers right at the top of the page. Pretty, pretty sweet. Pretty sweet. So um, if you haven't tried that out, go over. You, you'll need a, to, in order to use those, you'll need a draft to digital account or a books to read account. Go to books2read.com. Books, the number two, read.com. And uh, give that a shot. And my neighbors upstairs have started vacuuming. They vacuum obsessively. 
I should have, I should just invite them down here. <laughs> so, uh, other news, um, my new book, my new Dan Cotley thriller, The Antarctic Forgery, is on pre-order. Uh, it'll release on December 15th, um, so that's a Saturday. Um, and uh, it's on pre-order right now, so you can you can pick up a copy right away. Um, I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty thrilled about this one. This this resolves a through-line story, a B story that I've been keeping alive uh, for the past two years, uh, ever since the uh, uh, the Atlantis riddle. Uh, so go check that out if you uh, and if you don't if you don't mind, uh, help me spread the word around that. Uh, get get that out there. That pre-order. Uh, is going on right now. You can find it on Amazon. Just search for the Antarctic Forgery. Uh, if you're on my mailing list, you got an email a few minutes ago uh, with a link to that. And I'll try to remember to put a link to it in the show notes as well. So that's it. That's the big news. Uh, I'm back from 20 Books Vegas. Uh, there was uh, quite a bit of cigarette smoke in uh, Sam's Town. <laughs> I joke that I've developed a 60 pack a day habit. But I got to meet a whole lot of uh, great folks that I've known virtually and digitally for the past few years. Uh, finally got to hang out with some of these guys and gals. Uh, the real world Roland Denzel, for example, I got to hang out with him. He, me and uh, him and Nick hit the strip one night. Uh, we got, uh, uh, I met Michael Anderley, whom I've met before, but I uh, met him and his crew, Craig Martell and all that. Um, so a whole lot of great, interesting folks. If you get a chance, anytime, uh, this conference rolls around, uh, if you can make it, you should go. There were 700, 700 plus authors and industry influencers at this thing. Uh, some fantastic keynotes and, uh, presentations, lots of opportunity to interact one-on-one -on -one with some very, uh, influential people in this community. Uh, and basically just, uh, it was like the community itself had shown up in Vegas. That's what it was like. So, fantastic. Uh, I loved it. I hope to uh, to attend again in, in the future. I intend to attend again in the future. Uh, maybe I'll get to the one in uh, Edinburgh. That would be that'd be great. <laughs> so, other than that, um, thank you so much for tuning in for another week of the Wordslinger podcast. Uh, I I really hope you got something positive out of today. Um, I. Uh, I know this is the second week in a row that we've had a, a kind of tough, emotionally tough episode. Um, I don't want to, I, my worry was that I didn't want to come off like I was exploiting either of these two writers. Uh, but I, I'm mostly, I just want to honor them and I want to point out how the community rallies around, um, its own and takes, we take care of ourselves. So, which is something I love. So God bless each and every one of you. Take care of yourselves out there. Have a fantastic... we got the U.S. Thanksgiving holiday coming up next week. I hope you have a safe one. Find something you're grateful for and uh, go shout it out. Uh, let me know. Pop over to wordslingerpodcast.com. Uh, you can leave comments on these show note pages. Or uh, hit me up on social media at Kevin Tomlinson. Uh, search for Kevin Tomlinson on uh, Facebook. Uh, wherever, wherever you're finding folks, you'll probably find me. So... Pop on over, say hello. God bless each and every one of you. We'll see you all next time. Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Wordslinger Podcast. Now, you can support this show by visiting wordslingerpodcast.com. That's where you're going to find back episodes, books by me, and links to anything and everything Wordslinger. 
And be sure to subscribe to this show on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and anywhere else fine podcasts are sold. I'm Kevin Tomlinson. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.